You can go ahead and take your seat, and as you're doing so, you can take your Bible and open up to Genesis chapter 30. And if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are up at the front here. They're going to walk towards the back, and you can feel free just to slip your hand up in the air, and we'll make sure a Bible gets across to you. And we want to just encourage you, if you don't own a copy of the Bible, just keep this one, and, uh, and we just pray that you will be blessed by it, We're trusting that God is going to bless us all today as we dive into his word. We are diving back into Genesis, and I I mentioned last week that we're going to be taking some larger chunks, and this is going to be one of those weeks where there is a a lot of text to go through. Sometimes, uh, you know, there's a little bit of text and a lot of explanation. Sometimes there's a lot of text and therefore a little bit of explanation, and that's going to be one of those Sundays together as we dive into God's word. But this passage, it it is a striking passage. Um, There are times very frequently frequently where I am, I count it a real privilege and a joy to be able to preach God's word, but one of the greatest privileges of of my life is the preparation uh, for preaching. And every week, um, I feel like God is constantly teaching me and showing me things I've never seen before. And and that makes the the kind of that, the delight in delivering it to you just all the sweeter. There are things that I'm just learning and growing in and seeing for the first time. And it just is so, listen, if you're a student of the Bible, if you love the Lord, it should be reinvigorating to your soul to come to the Word of God and to see things you've never seen before, to see how awesome God is, to see how God is weaving together this incredible story of redemption from page to page. In this chapter, there is a remarkable parallel with the Exodus account. It's written in a way that we are supposed to pick up on the allusion to the, the Exodus event whereby God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt And what we've seen already in the book of Genesis is that there are multiple parallels in the lives of the patriarchs in particular, these these kind of exodus events. They are in one sense prefiguring the actual exodus event, but remember, the people who first read this book, who received the word of God, they were the people who had come out of the exodus. And so that entire event was so fresh in their minds. Their entire experience had been shaped by the Exodus event. And so they're reading through the scripture. They're hearing the word of God delivered to them verbally. And and they're hearing in the lives of the patriarchs, the saints who had gone before them, the people of God before they were the people of God. What they are getting to see is that there are some things that never change for the people of God and there is some things that never change, and that is God himself. So so they're being given a lens through which to interpret their experiences, to understand the very nature of the lives God's called them to live, and above all of that, they're supposed to be seeing the unchanging God, Yahweh himself, And so before we dig into this at a kind of micro level and mine out some truths because there's plenty here, we need to first grasp the importance of this macro level idea. The Spirit of God through the person of Moses is wanting us to see some things here. There's something that we must understand about 
uh, what it means to be God's people. There is this common identity we share, even this side of the cross, and there is above all a common God that we worship, the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This pattern is repeated in order to teach us, listen, fundamentally, that we are a people who are in need of a great exodus. Okay, the reason the pattern keeps showing up throughout the pages of Scripture is because God is trying to press into humanity that there is this need for an exodus event to happen for every single individual who walks the face of this earth. They are all in bondage and slavery to sin. That's what the entire book of Genesis from the very beginning has been showing us. But there is a great God who is more powerful than sin and who is going to make a way of escape from sin through an exodus, a spiritual exodus, a deliverance event. And as we see these exodus events, we, we are supposed to resonate with what's going on in the lives of the people of God. You know, we will often feel, just like them, that we're treated like foreigners in this world. We'll often feel, as we've just sung, that we're wandering through the wilderness. We'll often feel like sojourners. We'll often feel like exiles. We won't often be accepted by this world. We'll often be rejected by this world. And as we look through the pages of Scripture, it's like God's saying, listen, don't be surprised by this. Don't be caught off guard by this. This has always been the case for the people of God. Yes, there have been moments where, you know, being a Christian has been in favor with our culture, but those moments don't typically last very long, not in the grand scheme of history. And we need to see, like they needed to see, that our identity should be firmly grounded in our relationship with the unchanging God, not in our relationship with this ever-changing world. God's people have often been mistreated, oppressed, and despised. That is not a sign of God's rejection of us. It is very often the sign of God's, listen, this is really, really important, God's blessing upon us. That you are actually of God. And that's what's so powerful about this text in front of us. You see, our God has promised to bless us. Our job is to recognize his blessing during our time as exiles so that we can thrive as we walk through the wilderness. To not place our hope in this world, but in the God who is over this world. And as we consider Jacob's exodus here from Mesopotamia, we must recognize God's blessing upon him. And this, page, this passage is going to just be showing forth the blessing of God. Everybody's going to start seeing that it's God blessing Jacob. God is doing exactly what he said he would do. And everybody who seems to be around Jacob and attaches themselves to Jacob, they get this residual kind of blessing by just being near to him. I want you to see that if you're in Christ today, living this side of the cross, if you are part of the people of God, you are blessed more than Jacob ever could possibly have fathomed. We must recognize it in his life and in ours. So, 
We're going to walk through this text, and we're going to kind of march through it. I've got four points, and they're all shaped around this idea of recognizing the blessing. And I'm going to kind of talk through the text. There's a lot to get through, so I'm going to talk through it, and we're going to kind of explain as we go, and then I'm going to kind of draw out some important, I think, application for us. First, recognize the blessing that God differentiates his people according to his gracious presence. He makes us distinct, separate, identifiable. We pick up in chapter 30, verse 25, and it says this, As soon as Rachel had borne Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, remember, he is He has fled his family because his brother was trying to kill him. And at the same time, he is to find a wife. He's ended up with wives, plural. And now he's living with his father-in-law, Laban. And he's been there at this point in time for 14 years, seven years payment for each of the wives that Laban has given to him. And so he comes to, to... Jacob comes to Laban and he says, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go for you, that I may go for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. There's the first instance of blessing leaping off the page. Here is Laban himself who recognizes that this man Jacob is blessed and he is blessed because of Jacob. And it's, it's interesting to try to figure out what's going on here. It's more than likely that he's used some kind of omen. It's, it's an indication that Laban is different than Jacob. He does not worship the God of Jacob. He's familiar with the God of Jacob, but he is not surrendered to the God of Jacob. He is different and distinct. And so we're, we're seeing here already, God is differentiating Laban from Jacob, and it's all revolving around the blessing that has been poured out fundamentally and primarily on Jacob. It wouldn't have been that hard to see. He didn't have to use any kind of magic or omens or things like that. It was becoming very apparent that Jacob was being blessed by God. But Laban picks up on it in verse 28. It says this, name your wages and I will give it to you. Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. Notice this, for you had little before I came. He he was not a wealthy man. He didn't have much to his name. And we know already, remember, Laban is consumed with wealth and riches. He's always got his eye on stuff and money and things. And he's always scheming to try to get for himself in crooked ways what is not rightly his. And he's about to do the same thing here all over again. Some things never change. This man certainly hasn't changed. You had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly. Notice again, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? You see his heart? He said, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything if you will do this for me. I will again pasture your flock and keep it. 
Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. Now, here's what Jacob is doing here. He is actually presenting a favorable deal to Laban. He's picking uh, the, the minority in these groups, okay? He's willing to take the, the, the lesser instead of the greater, I'll get paid less, but I'll, you know, I'll get the ones that are the unwanted. They're not as popular out there, hanging out with the other sheep. And so he, he makes this deal, and, and it's a really sweet deal. And he does it. He does it. Look at it in verse 33. So my honesty will answer for me later. I don't want you to think that any of the blessings I receive are because I cheated you in any way. When you come to look into my wages with you, everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, good. Let it be as you have said. But that day, Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted. This guy is a scoundrel. Even when presented with an incredible deal, he still wants more for himself. And he wants to make life very difficult on Jacob. And notice, in all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in charge of his sons. And then he makes life even more difficult, and he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastored the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plain trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks uh, that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is the watering places, where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in front of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, male servants and fe- female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. He is getting filthy rich. And this was all a result of God's blessing on him. Now, he goes through this interesting process, and, and perhaps you're asking, like, what, what's this deal with these sticks that he's peeling back, and you know, are, are they really working? I think the simple answer is no. This is obviously, I think, something that was cultural. There's no kind of scientific theory involved here. It's kind of like the mandrakes in the previous episode, right? They thought there was some kind of mystical power in the fruit that was going to lead to the birth of children. And just like it wasn't the case in the previous chapter, so that's not the case in this chapter. In fact, I think what we're we're supposed to see here again is that human ingenuity, human plans, human wisdom, and human power do not produce or bring about the blessings of God. In fact, we're going to find out in chapter 31, Jacob himself is going to say that God made it very clear to him that the results were all due to the power of God. 
God did it. God did it all. Even when Jacob thought maybe he was helping God out, in reality, God didn't need his helping hand at all. But what we see here, as we kind of look at this passage, is that Jacob is at a disadvantage. He's being taken advantage of, and we're supposed to recognize that the decks have been stacked against him. The odds are actually, uh, uh, though it doesn't appear so, the odds are actually in his favor. Every time Laban changes the plan to negatively impact Jacob, that's exactly where he prospers. Isn't that amazing? And God's got a sense of humor, doesn't he? Laban's like, I'm going, to take, I'm going to take this guy down. I know he's being blessed with the Lord. I'm going, to, I'm going to make it so that he can't prosper anymore, and I'm going, to prosper. I'm going to guarantee it. And from a human standpoint, he thinks it's working, and all of a sudden, every little change he makes to try to hurt Jacob, God says, I'm going to bless that too. Well, I'll change this, and well, I'm going to bless that too. You can't thwart the blessing of God. When God says he's going to bless, God is going to do exactly what he says he will do. Why, why though, has God blessed him? Or what really is the blessing in this passage? For sure, there is material prosperity here. That is very evident, but I think we we can't just look at the material prosperity and the wealth that he's accumulated and say that 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 is the blessing. That is the external evidence of the greater spiritual blessing that the Lord wants us to pay attention to here, that the Lord wants us to recognize. You see, all of this was attributed to the fact that it was the Lord who was with, remember, who was with Jacob. The greatest blessing that Jacob had was not his material possessions, but he had the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hill. He knows Yahweh God, and God has spoken to him, and God has promised to bless him. Remember the previous chapter where God had said, I I will be with you wherever you go. I will keep you. It is the presence of of God among the people of God that differentiates us from everyone else in the world. It's not the amount of material blessings you have. It's not how easy your life is. That is not always the sign, is it not? Isn't this not true? That's not always the sign that you are blessed of God. Sometimes, sometimes the church suffers. Sometimes people mistreat us. Sometimes people oppress us. And many times, people in their lives, listen, they they actually believe in those moments, they kind of get into this, this place where they're experiencing a lot of pressure, a lot of trials, a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, and their gut reaction is to somehow think or believe that this is evidence that God's not really with me. God's not really caring for me. God doesn't really love me. And I promise you that Jacob would have had ample opportunities to believe that, to express that, and maybe even to verbally declare that. For 14 years, he has been abused and mistreated by the hands of his father-in-law. And yet what we see is that he remains a man. He is becoming a man who is committed to God. He is having faith in God, trusting God in the midst of the hardship, in the midst of the difficulties. I would suggest that this is how we are being told to view our position in this world. We, as the people of God, are often viewed by the world as the lowly, uh, the weak, 
the powerless, but we must recognize God's blessing upon our lives. He differentiates us according to his gracious presence. We are his people, and he is our God. We ought not to be ashamed of this reality. Whatever station of life you find yourself in, whatever challenges you're facing, what you can know for certain is that you have God, and he has you. God's gracious presence, not Jacob's great plans, differentiated him in this passage. This made me think this week as I was processing this in light of the Exodus and and in light of Moses, who had to wrestle through a lot of trials and opposition himself. Here's what he says in Exodus 33, 16. I'll put it on the screen for you. Uh, This is such a great verse. He says, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? How shall it be known, here's how you can translate this, that I have found blessings in your sight? I've been blessed by you and your people. How is that we know? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of this earth? This is what God wants his people to know. God is creating a people. He's calling them out of the world and he's setting them apart We must recognize that that is God's blessing upon our lives, the greatest blessing of all, his presence and his provision, not because of us, but often in spite of us. Every time we read these stories in the Old Testament, we have to remember these are people who are not worthy of God's blessing. Jacob is a a sinner and a schemer. Remember, that's how we got to this place in the first place. Yet God chooses to bless in spite of sin. And in order to put his marvelous grace on full display, I want to encourage you, maybe by way of application, when we prosper in our lives, maybe it's materially, maybe it's financially, whatever way we tend to prosper, let us not believe nor declare that it is because we have done it. Let us believe and let us declare that it is because he has done it. Let us not be fooled into thinking that just because, you know, we've worked hard or, you know, we've put in the time and the effort, that we've developed the skills and the abilities, let us never believe that any of the blessings we receive in this life are our doing, they are God's doing. Everything we have, every good and perfect gift is from the Father of lights. And I want to encourage you to be quick to declare that. If people are recognizing God's blessing in your life, like, man, you just seem to be prospering. Maybe you're advancing in your career or academics or maybe, you know, you're, you're, you're standing amongst your peers uh, for good reasons. I, I want to encourage you not to take glory away from God by saying, yeah, you know, I've, I've just been, you know, I've been really working hard. Look at all the work. Look how good I am. But to say, look how good God is. Look how good God is. Let's give glory to God for all the good things he gives to us. When you look at Laban here, Laban wants what God can give without giving himself to God. Jacob is learning that having God's presence is better than having God's presence. See what I did there? It's Christmas is coming, okay? He's, he's learning, and this is something we have to learn too. This is the very heart of Christmas, isn't it? You know, the reason we give presents, presents, It's because we're reminded that God gave the, gave, gave the greatest present of all, his presence among us. And if you have that, you have everything. 
Second, recognize the blessing that God directs his people according to his good purposes. In chapter 31, we see God directing, I think, in three, three ways that I, I think he often uses to direct his people. And the first is, is through his people. It says, now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and he called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus, God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see, all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do it. Again, God is directing, I think, in in three ways here. First, through his people. This is not in order, by the way. It is time for Jacob to gather his family and his possessions together and depart from Paran Aram. And Jacob and his wives, uh, they rally together out in this field. And here's what's interesting to note. They speak the name God seven times in their brief interaction together. If you know anything about the book of Genesis, you've been here since the beginning, that seven number is a very important number. It's the, the, the number of per- perfection and completion. It's referenced as God's number. And there is a sense here in which we're supposed to see that it is God who is directing their paths. They are recognizing the blessing of God upon their lives and that God himself has been overseeing, superintending their lives, and now God is continuing to direct their path away from danger. God, again, I want to just highlight this. God is the controlling factor in their decision-making process. Let me ask you as an application, is he the controlling factor in the decision-making of your life? 
Is that, is that what ultimately guides you in your life? Are you quick to run to God? Are you quick to run to God in prayer when you have to make major decisions in your life? Are you quick to run to the word of God, to hear God's voice, to give you wisdom and principles about decisions you're making for your future, your family, maybe your finances? Does your life, the direction of your life, revolve around God? Or is God just kind of something you tack on here and there to make you feel a little bit better about yourself, to make you feel like maybe I'm kind of following God, maybe God's okay with this? Is he an afterthought in your decisions? Or is he at the front end of every decision you make? Second, I think God is directing through providence. The book of Genesis, we keep seeing this over and over, but God's providence, his sovereignty, he he is moving everything around, directing all things according to the counsel of his will. God's not just a master chess player who sees, you know, five or six or ten moves ahead. He sees it all perfectly. Nothing surprises him. Nothing catches him off guard. Jacob began by reviewing for his wives Laban's unfair dealings. And his conclusion was this in verse 9. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. See what he's doing there? He is seeing that it's God at work, right? Every time uh, Laban thought he was in control and changed things, God was saying, you're not the one in charge. You're not the one in control. You can't manipulate this life any which way you want. I can take everything you've manipulated. I can take your crooked paths and I can make them straight. He's recognizing God's blessing. It's so obvious, isn't it? Clearly, God's great purposes, not Jacob's grand plans or even Laban's manipulative deception are the reasons for the prosperity that they're experiencing. God's hands are bringing about God's purposes. Third, I think he is directing through prophecy. And this is the way God works, through his people. Through providence, you need to pay attention to the way God is moving things around in your life, and maybe he's helping to shape the direction of your life. Sometimes you're not aware it's happening, but you can look back and see clearly this is of the Lord. God was all over this. But third and most importantly, God directs through prophecy, and by that I mean his revealed word. Jacob recounted how God had confirmed this to him in a dream during the breeding season that concluded with this divine directive in in verse 13. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. This called, obviously, to Jacob's mind the vow, the the divine encounter that he had had and the vow that he had made in response to that divine encounter all the way back in chapter 28. The division or the dream of of God standing on the top of the ladder and, and then the angels going up and down from heaven to earth doing the bidding of God. 
And certainly he's being reminded here in a potent way of the sacred vow that he made in that place. The oil he poured on the the rock that was once his pillow. But now a place of praise. It was there in the promised land that he made this vow. It was there that God had promised that he would bring him back to the land. And it is now that God is calling him to pick up and go. It was there that he declared, God, you're going to be faithful to me and I'm going to be faithful to you. God, whatever you say, I'll do. We need to pay much attention to these three guides in our own lives, the people of God, the providence of God, and the prophecy of God. I love how Peter wants to help us avoid making uh, emotional or impulsive decisions by directing us to a much sure word, the prophetic word of God. I just want to urge you, I want to encourage you that when you hear God clearly speaking to you through his word, your obligation as a child of God is to do exactly what he says whenever he says it. Don't delay, obey right away, right? Right, with a happy heart, with joy, knowing that this is going to lead to, first of all, it is a blessing to have the word of God and it is a blessing to respond to the word of God. God will bless both the receiving, the hearing, and the doing. I want you to think about Moses as you think about this Exodus account here. And think about Moses who is called by God to go and to speak to Pharaoh the very word of God. Let my people go that they might come out into the wilderness to worship me. He goes to the most powerful man on the planet with nothing but the word of God and the promise of God and the blessing of God. And he goes to lead God's people out of slavery and into the presence of God himself in the wilderness and eventually all the way to the promised land. I wonder what area of trust and obedience is God honing in on in your life, maybe even right now in this moment. Perhaps it's the moment of salvation. Perhaps what God is getting at in your life is that You're too much like Laban. You just want the things from God and you don't want to surrender to God. And God is saying, listen, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let today be the day of salvation. Do not resist God's grace any longer. Bow the knee to him. Confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Believe in your heart that he died for you and that God rose him from the dead and received today eternal life. There is no greater blessing than receiving the the gift of Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, King of kings and Lord of lords. God offers it to you today, but you must respond to the gospel call. Perhaps it's salvation. Maybe it's a specific sin that God is calling you to give up today. To communion Sunday, there's a great time for you, even right now, to be asking, God, are there sins in my life? Are there things that I have been harboring, things that have been weighing me down, that have been clinging too closely to me? Are there willful sins in my life that I know I'm committing, I know are an offense to you, but I'm still walking in it willfully? And God, will you convict me of that? And will you help me today, O Lord, to give that to you and to receive the grace of God and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ? Don't let sin rule your life. 
Maybe it's circumstantial, maybe it's emotional, psychological, maybe there's, there's bitterness in your heart. Maybe, maybe if I can use this situation of Jacob and Laban, again, it, it could have been very easy for Jacob to be filled with bitterness and resentment and anger. Look what's been done to him. Look how he's been hurt. Look how his family has been targeted by this selfish, abusive, oppressive father. And maybe, maybe your struggle today is, is bitterness over abuse or mistreatment. Maybe you've been really hurt. And maybe what God is, is saying to you today is it's time to deal with that. You, you can't let that rule your life. You can't live there. It's going to destroy you. You know, I, we've, I say this all the time, and I, I don't know who originally said it, but you know, bitterness is like drinking poison, hoping the other person's going to die. God's like, you can't live there. What about as a church? Well, there's one thing that's very clear when we look at the New Testament. God calls us to do a lot of things, but as a church, there's one thing we cannot miss. God has called us to go. God has called us to go to the nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that he has commanded us, and, and, and the kicker is this, knowing that he is with us to the very end of the age. God has called us, church, to go. And I want to encourage you, as we are continuing to do life together from week to week, as we're journeying together as a family, as the people of God through the wilderness of this world, let us not forget, we are, we are, by the grace of God and the blessing of God, on our way to the promised land, amen? We're going to the new heaven. There's a new heavens and a new earth that awaits us in Christ where we will know the blessing of God like we have never known it before. But listen, on the way, on the way, we cannot forget, we have one mission, Go to the nations and call them in. Preach the gospel. Make disciples. See people. Abandon the gods of this world for the one true and living God that they might know the blessings of eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's the call for all of us. So here's, here's again. Are we doing it? Are you telling people about Jesus? Am I? Are we, are we actively engaging with the people that God's put in our, our spheres of influence, or are we just kind of, you know, steering clear of that, keeping it at arm's length, and believing that, that's, you know, maybe God will use somebody else? No, no, no. Listen, God wants to use you. He wants to use me. We have to remember that the direction we're moving includes going you know, along the highways and the byways and rallying the, the outcast, the downtrodden, the, the lost and the broken, those who are living in darkness and, and leading them into the light of Jesus Christ by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. When God calls us to go, will we go? When God calls us to obey, will we obey? He's directing according to his good purposes. And his purpose is to bring the gospel to the end of the earth. Next, recognize the blessing that God defends his people according to his glorious preeminence. Now, this might be my favorite part of this, this chapter. It's really, really powerful. So Jacob arose, verse 17, and set his sons and his wives on camels. 
He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods, and Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. Now just pause there for a second. There's a wordplay going on here in the passage that we're supposed to pick up on. And uh, it's a bad translation here in the ESV, but you'll notice that um, there's a little, hopefully a footnote by, uh, in verse 20, where it says, and Jacob tricked. Do you have that there? Shake your head. Yeah, you got it? My Bible's not the only one? Okay, drop down and just take a look at what it says. It says, Hebrew, it means this, stole the heart of. Okay, so you see what's happening here? Uh, the, the word tricked needs to be understood as stole the heart of, which is an idiom for being tricked or deceived. So the Hebrew text literally reads something like this. And Rachel stole her father's household gods, and Jacob stole the heart of Laban the Aramean. And then this is, this is Moses' brilliant way of showing how Rachel and Jacob are of kindred spirit. They're fully aligned in this pursuit. They are together in this mission. But it also shows that Laban and his gods are not the ones in control, nor do they have the ultimate power in this situation. We're going to see that unfold. They stole the father's household gods. These are probably miniature uh, little household gods that were small enough, obviously, to put into a, a satchel, easy to hide. And it's, it's intended to be a bit of a mockery here. That's what we're supposed to get from this. God is declaring, listen, his glorious preeminence over the gods of Laban. I mean, he's got a God who's been stolen. And, and there's a parallel in the Exodus event that I want you to think about for a moment. God has a way of demonstrating his power and preeminence over the gods of the nations. One of the ways God does this in the Exodus event is actually through the plagues. Some of you may not realize this, but you're like, well, yeah, why, why does he pour out kind of the, each, the, the, the plagues, those specific plagues, the gnats, the frogs? Like, wh- why all of those things? The, the simple answer is because every one of those represents an Egyptian god that was worshipped in their culture and context. And so what is being subtly, do- not so subtly actually done, is Moses is declaring and demonstrating that the God of Israel is greater. He is superior. He is preeminent above every other God. He makes the gods of this world look like nothing but foolish pieces of wood or stone that can be grabbed from a mantle and put in your pocket. That's power. That's preeminence. And then Laban, notice this, he pursues. And, and the way that this is, is kind of framed is almost like a military campaign. In fact, the language that's used in the Hebrew, it, it does have military connotations. It's not just like a normal chase scene. He's like a military commander. I want you to think of the Exodus event. He's like Pharaoh gathering his armies and, camp, and camping around the enemies in order to go after the people he believes are actually his. Look at this. When it was told Laban, it was told to Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled 
He took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And and there's a little footnote there. Did you catch that? It says this, yeah, right. Okay, it doesn't say that. But that's the point. Who's this guy think he is? He's like, oh, oh yeah, you were going to celebrate us leaving? You are going to throw a big party for us? You were, you were going to give us a good pat on the back and thank us for all the years of service? You just wanted to hold your grandchildren one more time and give them a kiss when all along you've been ripping us off? We have no inheritance to give to our children because you've squandered it all? You don't care about anybody but yourself, Laban. You're a wicked man trying to destroy God's people. Or use them for yourself. And it's, it's amazing. Again, the, the deceiver has again been deceived. He says, verse 28, Why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. Notice again that he thinks that he's the one in charge. He thinks he has the power, and God is making it clear that that is not the case. It is in my power to do you harm. No. No, not if God's protecting you. Not if God is your defender. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why? It's almost like a sad note here, isn't it? But why did you steal my gods? (laughs) It's like a little baby crying. You stole my gods. Can you believe that? This is an indictment. There's There's some divine irony here. There's some humor here that we need to pay attention to. I mean, if your God can be God napped, that God is not worth anything. What's the purpose of possessing household gods? Do you want to know what they believe these gods were supposed to do for them? Protect them against theft. (laughs) Not only have these gods failed to protect Laban, Laban now has to chase them down to rescue them. (laughs) So his, his god can't defend him, but he needs to defend his god. Do you see the irony here? Do you see the difference here? And it gets even worse, because this God is about to be defiled, made unclean. And that is, again, a not-so-subtle statement from God that there is only one true God, and every other God is unclean, defiled, sinful. Jacob answered and said to Laban, verse 31, because I was afraid 
For I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live in the presence of your kinsmen. Point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. He's totally unawares. We don't really know why Rachel stole them. Presumably she didn't believe in these gods. I think it was a dig at those gods and at her father who had so mistreated, so abused, so harmed the family and she was kind of sticking it to him on the way out. And then God takes whatever her motivations are, God takes this to show us that these gods are really no gods at all. But here comes Laban trying to find his gods, intent on finding the culprit. And Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Again, if you can sit on your God... Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And he said to her, Father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. And I just, I thought of this this morning as I was looking at this, just that, that statement, so he searched, but did not find the household gods. Isn't that the exact opposite of what God says about him? If you seek me, you will find me if you seek me with your whole heart. You see, these gods can't save anybody. It's pointless to seek these gods. Even if you find them, they have no power. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? There's kind of, in the Hebrew, there's kind of like a staccato style to this. It's almost like he's taking out a machine gun and there's this kind of pent up anger and frustration. 20 years of dealing with this man's abuse and now this man, again, has found nothing to these charges and so he just unloads on this man. What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found in all, of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you require it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night, there I was. By day, the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I have served you 14 years for two, your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. And as you hear those words, where, where have you heard those words before? God saw his people's affliction. He saw the labor. Is this not his people in Egypt forced difficult, hard, labor, afflicted, and then God sends Moses to call them out of slavery.
This is such an indictment on the gods of this world. Moses is declaring, our God doesn't need to be defended. Our God defends his people according to his glorious preeminence. You can hear the the spirit of God screaming from the pages of scripture, there is no God like our God. No one can compare. And you know, there's, there's one other event, there's multiple events where, where God shows his preeminence over the gods of the world, but I want to remind you of the greatest event of all that declares the preeminence of our God over the gods of this world. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, listen to what uh, Paul writes about the, the crucifixion, the cross, and the resurrection. It says this, that he disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Do you realize that though the cross appeared to be weakness and foolishness to the world, it was the victory and triumph of God on full display over the lowercase g, gods of this world. He stripped them of their power and the authority they once possessed. He declared through the cross once and for all in the fullest sense that he is God and there is no other. Last point. We need to recognize the blessing that God delivers his people according to his good promises. And here, I'll just read it and make a couple quick comments, and this is going to prepare us to receive the Lord's Supper. It says, then Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. This guy just doesn't get it. He's like, you know, finding Nemo, like mine, 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 mine. He still, he still thinks he's, he's the one in charge. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I. Let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. And they ate thereby the heap. There's this covenant ceremony and this covenant meal so fitting for our day as celebrating the Lord's Supper. Laban called it Jagar Shadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid in Mitzpah. For he said, the Lord watched between you and me. When we are out of one another's sight, if you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap in the pillar, which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over the heap to you, and you will not pass over the heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Make no mistake about it. The blessing we are supposed to recognize is not that of Laban. It is the blessing of God 
upon his people. They go through this process, make this covenant, and have this meal. In a sense, there's this peace treaty that's formed between them. They're, they're no longer enemies. They're not friends. Maybe they're the first frenemies. I don't know. But they depart in peace. And it made me think of, of Psalm 23, especially the very end of Psalm 23. You know, the Lord is our shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside a still waters. He restores my soul. And he leads us, you know, for his name's sake, right? He leads us, you know, into the valley of the shadow of death, but we shall fear no evil for his rod and his staff. They, they comfort us. They protect us. He defends us. And then he says this, and this is the hope for every believer. He prepares a table before before me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with oil. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And there's this sweet picture here and even though Laban's well intended, this, this points us to a, a different covenant, doesn't it? Jacob's not putting his hope and his security and his confidence in this covenant made with Laban. He is putting it in the covenant that has been made and established and ratified by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that Abrahamic covenant that is really what secures him, what guards him, what defends him, it's what ultimately will deliver him. And it's what will ultimately deliver us according to God's good promises. You see, God made a promise that he was going to, through the covenant, bring about a savior to the world. And we know this side of the cross, Jesus Christ himself, he established a new covenant by his blood. It's a more sure covenant. It's a greater guarantee than any human being can offer. The hope for God's people has always been the covenant-making and the covenant-keeping God. And the Abrahamic covenant, it finds its full fulfillment in the new covenant. The new and greater covenant provides a new and greater exodus for God's people. Jesus spoke of his death, the shedding of his blood, as providing, again, forgiveness of sins and the establishment of a new covenant by his blood. The Jews, isn't it so fascinating how the story of the Bible is woven together, but the Jews celebrated the Passover feast to remind them of the exodus where there was a lamb whose blood was shed, and they took the blood, and they put it over their doorposts, and they were being reminded that the blood of the lamb covered them, it protected them, and it was ultimately pointing them to the greater exodus. And Jesus, as he sits at a Passover feast that night with his disciples, he takes that Passover feast and he transforms it and he says to them, it's being fulfilled in me. I am the Passover lamb. My blood will be shed for the forgiveness of your sins. There is a new covenant today that will be established with the people of God and will last forever and ever and ever. It will carry you through the wilderness and it will take you all the way to the promised land. This is what God offers to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Passover meal Remembering the old exodus, the Lord's Supper, listen, signifying the new exodus. We are saved from our sins and delivered to our God, brought from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. We must never forget that the pattern for our salvation began long ago and is fulfilled in Christ. Christ.